the release of a very big movie, and you are very excited, probably right about now, to see the live-action version in about a month. And that movie, of course, is The Lion King. And the song, which you will all remember, in the jungle, the mighty jungle, the lion sleeps tonight. Right? We all hear it in our head right now. But I don't know if you're like me at all. Have you ever stopped to wonder about those lyrics? I mean, since when is the jungle mighty and the lion sleeping? I mean, the lion's supposed to be the mighty one, right? King of the jungle and all of that. And why do we care if he's sleeping? I mean, that's not what we think about when we think lion, is it? No. We think fierce. We think king of the jungle. We think the MGM lion at the beginning of the movie who roars. And I was thinking about it. I did a little bit of research. And, and lions don't have, you know, the roar that we think of is actually normally a tiger's roar. A lion's roar is different. It's, it's this deep, throaty, bass, and terrifying thing. And I have heard that hyenas can sound sort of like lions roaring if you, if, you, um, if you don't know what you're listening to. Because then you hear the real thing and there's no mistaking it. And they say that, that even if you were to go on your computer and, and find a, a clip of a lion roaring, you really wouldn't get it because it's so deep-based that you feel it as much as you hear it, and your speakers can't handle it. And you can hear it five miles away. The lion is the apex predator of Africa. And in ancient times, it had a much larger territory. There were Asian lions that were as far east as Iran. And, they, and the lions, apparently, archaeologists have found evidence as far north as the Balkans and Ukraine and even into Greece. In the ancient world, if you wanted to be a hero, what do you do? You kill a lion. Hercules killed the Nemean lion. Samson, in Judges 14, kills a lion with his bare hands. And there are relief mosaics uh, in Assyria of lion hunts. Even as cartoons like Mufasa and Simba, the lion is king. And of course, there's that other lion that we all know from literature. Wrong will be right when Oslin comes in sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bears his teeth, winter meets its death, and when he shakes his mane, we shall have spring again. Rhyme told to Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy by Mrs. Beaver in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, which I just learned that I have failed as a father. Uh, the other day I learned that my daughter has not actually read the book, and so she has listened to it, um, but not read it, and I just, terrible. Um, the children, upon learning that Aslan is a lion, are understandably afraid, Right? And Lucy asks, is he safe? Mr. Beaver replies, of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. You've seen the movie, they, they don't quite do that, that uh, line, but at one point they, they say he's not a tame lion. And lions mean power and kingship. And in the Bible, Judah is called a lion's cub by Jacob in Genesis 49. And so the lion becomes the emblem of this leading tribe. And then we hear about the lion of the tribe of Judah. Who is that? Jesus. So, back to my question. Let's deal with lions sleeping. The original song was written in the 1920s by a black South African who had a Zulu background. And it almost had no lyrics at all. Other than Lion Stop. It was based on a sort of traditional scheme. And lyrics were added in the late 40s or, or early 50s, depending on who you read. Um, and it was turned into a lullaby. And the song tells the story of a family who's gathered at night. They're in Africa. They're Africans. And the youngest child is afraid because he hears the wild animals in the night. And so what does mom do? She comforts him and tells him that the family is strong together. They always protect one another. 
And she says that the lion sleeps tonight. And the repeated chorus in the original, the 1920s, 1930s recording of the original, is mostly this sort of upbeat, all-male choir chant of the word for lion in Zulu, which sounds something like imbube. And if you listen closely to this recording and this chant overlaying, it sounds remarkably like Wimoe. It's my Paul Harvey moment for the morning. <laughs> but why all this about lions? I'm glad you asked. Turn with me to the book of Amos and let's find out. We're going to start a new series today. As you saw, Amos. One of the minor prophets. And today we're going to be in chapter 1 and chapter, the beginning of chapter 2. And this is how it begins. The words of Amos, one of the shepherds of Tekoa, the vision he saw concerning Israel two years before the earthquake. When Uzziah, same Uzziah that we just read about in Isaiah, was king of Judah and Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, was king of Israel. He said... The Lord roars from Zion and thunders from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds dry up and the top of Carmel withers. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Damascus, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath. Because she threshed Gilead with sledges having iron teeth, I will send fire to the house of Hazael that will consume the fortresses of Ben-Hadad. I will break down the gate of Damascus. I will destroy the king who is in the valley of Avon, and the one who holds the scepter in Beth Eden. The people of Aram will go into exile to Kerr, says the Lord. For three sins of Gaza, and even for four, I will not turn back my wrath. Because she took captive whole communities and sold them to Edom. I will send fire on the walls of Gaza and will consume the fortresses. I will destroy the king of Ashdod, the one who holds the scepter in Ashkelon. I will turn my hand against Ekron till the last of the Philistines are dead, says the sovereign Lord. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Tyre, even for four, I will not turn, my back on, uh, turn back my wrath. Because she sold whole communities of captives to Edom, disregarding a treaty of brotherhood. I will send fire on the walls of Tyre so that that will consume her fortresses. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Edom, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath. Because he pursued his brother with a sword and slaughtered the women of the land, because his anger raged continually and his fury flamed unchecked, I will send fire on Timon that will consume the fortresses of Basra. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Ammon, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath, because he ripped open the pregnant women of Gilead in order to extend his borders. I will set fire to the walls of Rabbah that will consume her fortresses amid war cries on the day of battle, amid violent winds on a stormy day. Their king will go into exile, and he and his, he and his officials together, says the Lord. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Moab, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath, because he burned to lime the bones of Edom's king. I will send fire on Moab that will consume the fortresses of Kerioth. Moab will go down in great tumult amid war cries and the blast of the trumpet. I will destroy her ruler and kill all her officials with him, says the Lord. Would you pray for me? Father, as we begin a new series, it's um, sometimes difficult to understand all that's going on and to see such a, a harsh picture. And I pray that you would help us this morning to see that this is just not a, a picture of wanton destruction, but of who you are and your judgment and your plan for all of humanity. I pray that you would help us to
see you more clearly today and that we would honor you because of it. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So we've traversed the Roman Empire with Paul. We've successfully, I hope, made our way through minefields of contemporary culture. And here today, we are sort of on the Wayback Machine, emerging about 750 B.C., 450 or so years after Samson and the lion, 250 years after David, contemporary, though a little bit earlier, to Isaiah. So, this morning... We have a specific passage, and we also have an overview of what's going on in Amos. Why would we pick this book? So let's begin by introducing Amos in verses 1 and 2. I missed an M in your outline, and it, the first one. Um, and you'll see what I mean in a minute. But So I had to come up with one, and so the only one that worked was... was mise-en-scene, which is French for the situation or the or so. And it's about 160 or so years prior to where we're at today in our passage. Israel splits into two kingdoms. In the north, Israel is ruled by Jeroboam I, comprised of the ten northern tribes. And in the south, Judah, named for the one tribe remained math is right, that's only 11. It's ruled by Solomon's son Rehoboam. So where's the 12th tribe? Well, the 12th tribe is the Levites, right? They don't have a territory. And mostly they would soon make their way south and center in and around Jerusalem, anchoring the worship there. And this breakup of the kingdom was not a good one. Both kingdoms suffered. Poor leadership. Attacks idol worship, bad kings and angry prophets like Ahab and Elijah about a hundred years or so before Amos, incursions by the Egyptians and even the Ethiopians against Judah, the Assyrians and more against Israel in the north. But now, at the time of Amos, everything is calm and prosperous. The map that should be coming up, that you see here, it's kind of hard to see. Um, shows a little bit of what's going on here. Israel is in the north. The lighter gray and the reddish color is Judah in the south. And those other um, things we're going to get to here in a minute. We're going to spend most of our time in this book in the north. And it's doing very well when Amos comes on the scene. Archaeology has discovered palaces from this time frame that could very well be described as opulent. Jeroboam II is on the throne. He will reign for over 40 years, the longest of any northern king. And in the south, Uzziah reigns in Jerusalem. And he actually reigns longer than Jeroboam II, 52 years in total, although many were as co-regent with his father. And this is one of the things that we don't think about, but often there are co-regents um, at this time. And at this point, Judah and Israel are as healthy as they could possibly be, given their divisions. About 40 or 50 years before, the Assyrian Empire had been very strong, and it captured Damascus, up here in the north, in that, that uh, top right corner. Damascus was the capital of Aram, the, the, the country of Aram. It's one of the oldest ocu- continually occupied cities in the world. But power struggles had caused the Assyrians to withdraw, and Aram, who had been a, sore, a thorn in the side of Israel, has been left weak. And so Israel is able to advance. Egypt in the south is in decline, and that means opportunity for both Israel and Judah. We're going to learn more about those two kingdoms next week, but suffice it to say that the stock market is up and wealth is pouring in. 
and the rich are getting richer. Borders are expanding. Jeroboam has recaptured lost territory, including some of Judah's. Uzziah has pushed back the Philistines, and on the surface, everything looks good. But it's the surface, because paganism abounds. Jeroboam won several hundred years before, had set up altars in Bethel and Dan and placed bulls there. Pagan worship. And they're still being used hundreds of years later. And it's in this moment that the first of the later prophets appear. And Amos is the first to write. He's a contemporary of Jonah and Hosea. And his is the earliest of the prophetic books. He is not an insignificant book prophet. He's, he is called a minor prophet. His book is called a minor prophet because it's short. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel are the major prophets because they're long. And Amos is one of what the Hebrew Bible calls the book of the twelve. And those are the minor prophets. And it's two years before the earthquake, we are told, during the reigns of Uzziah and Jeroboam. problem is we don't know exactly when that was. We don't have good records. Probably 760 to 750 BC. So let's meet the man who reminds us that the lion is roaring. Amos. And names in the Bible, you'll find, are often tied to the person in some way. They say something about who they are in their character. Jacob becomes Israel, literally the grasper of the heel, becomes the one who wrestles with God. Peter is stone in Greek, and Cephas is the same in Aramaic. Peter is the little rock which propels forward the big rock, the stake, you are the Christ. And Amos means burden bearer. And as we're going to see, he certainly does bear a burden. We only know a little bit about him, what this book tells us. In verse 1, we, we understand he receives a message from God as a vision. The book starts, the words of Amos. And this was a, a stylistic way to indicate divine revelation had come. And the word vision here in the same sentence is a technical term. And it's also used to communicate divine revelation. This is a man bearing a message from God. But he's not exactly the man we would expect to be bearing this message. Who is he? Verse 1 tells us he is one of the shepherds of Tekoa. Tekoa is a small, possibly prosperous hill town about 10 miles south of Jerusalem. In Judah, in the south. In the past, it was largely believed that because he is identified as a shepherd, that probably Amos is a poor person. You know, this, the lowly image of shepherds that we normally think about. But that's probably not who Amos was. There's a great likelihood that he was sort of an agricultural businessman. There are a few reasons to believe this. First, the word used for shepherd here in Amos is only used one other time in the Old Testament. 2 Kings chapter 3, verse 4. And there, the king of Moab is called this. A sheep breeder. The second reason is, in chapter 7 of Amos, and we're going to see in a few weeks, he has a dispute with Amaziah. He's a priest in Israel, in the northern kingdom. Specifically, in Bethel where those pagan shrines exist. And Amos tells Amaziah that, that after Amaziah confronts him, that he is a herdsman in chapter 7, verses 14 and 15. And he says he's a, a caretaker of sycamore figs. Now, sycamore figs don't grow in the heights, they grow in the lowlands. And while the very poor might have eaten sycamore, they were kind of interesting. In order to ripen, they were nipped with a knife. Um, they're mainly used as food for livestock. And all of this seems to indicate that probably Amos is a middle-class rancher. He's got a sheep farm. And, and also, we see in chapter 7, verse 12... 
Amos is called a seer by Amaziah, and his response is that he is not a prophet or the son of a prophet. It's not a denial of having visions, it's a way of saying that he's not a professional prophet, that he's not part of the professional prophet's guild. And yes, there was one. In 2 Kings chapter 2, there's a story of Elijah and Elisha. And the sons of the prophets at Bethel, again, places become very important in the Bible, come out to tell Elijah, these sons of the prophets come out to tell Elisha that Elijah is going to be taken from him. The sons, there were schools, if you will, groups, and prophets were sort of a professional class, and Amos is saying, that's not who I am. And then there's another thing going on that helps indicate that he's probably not this poor person. As we just read, and as the map showed, all of those nations are all the nations that surround Israel. Amos has a pretty good idea of exactly what's going on in the world around him. He's aware enough that at least he understands the nearby countries. So all of this, I believe, indicates a few things to us about Amos. First, he's a man on a mission. He's sent with a specific and burdensome mission, a message. And he's not trained to be a prophet. He's not a priest or a preacher. Probably owns a decent-ish, though not huge, sheep farm. Well enough off that he can raise some of the food he needs to make his business run. And he's at least somewhat educated. He is, in many ways, you. Sitting in the pews. The person of Amos helps us to think a little bit about ourselves. Are we, like Amos, as we're going to see over the coming weeks, attentive enough to hear the message that God has for us and what we're called to say? We don't have to have the right training. We don't have to have gone to the right schools. We don't have to have the right title or the right letters behind our names. What we do have to be is attentive enough to listen and be willing to step up and do what we're called to do, willing to bear the load like Amos. And it's probable that the ministry of Amos lasted weeks to only a couple of years at most. Amos was available was when called, and then you know what he probably did? He went back to sheep ranching. Amos was available. Are we? There's going to be a next thing, no matter what we face. We just don't know what it is right now. And we need to be paying attention to God and aware enough of the world around us so that we can do what God calls us to do. It would have been far easier for Amos to have simply concerned himself with his sheep and his figs, his house and his family, but he didn't. He knew and understood and stepped up. And it really was stepping up, as we're going to see when we understand the nature of his message. You see, he didn't get the feel-good Weemaway song. He got the call on the carpet, death and destruction song. The Lion Roars song. And commentators basically universally agree that verse 2 sets the tone and theme for the entire book. The Lord roars from Zion and thunders from Jerusalem. Challenge laid. Pay attention. God is at work. The Lion is roaring. And that roar signifies destruction and judgment. And it reaches from Zion, from the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, all the way up to Mount Carmel. From the center of true worship, and as we're going to see throughout this book, there's a worship problem in Israel. All the way to the far northern reaches of of Israel, the site of Elijah's defeat of the prophets of Baal. A center of false religion. Nothing is spared. In Tekoa, Amos cares for sheep. And what does he say in verse 2? The pastures of shepherds dry up. And in the north, 
Carmel is a symbol of beauty and fertility. It's a lush area, and it withers, dries up. There are life-devastating, life-ending events, and this is the judgment of God, and this is the theme of Amos. Nothing and no one emerges unscathed. And we're going to look at this very unique opening salvo in a moment, but as we're just starting this series, it's worth introducing a few of the themes that we're going to see throughout the book. One of the commentaries I used was this one by David Allen Hubbard, and he identifies a few specific themes that we're going to see over and over again. First is God, Yahweh's rejection of Israel's social and religious practices. You saw in the, in the video, Let Justice Roll. Over and over in Amos, we're going to see two interwoven strands. First, the poor and the needy are oppressed. And there is a reason why Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. quoted Amos in his famous I Have a Dream speech and in the essay, Let Justice Roll Down. He says, let justice roll down like waters in a mighty stream, said the prophet Amos. He was seeking not consensus, but the cleansing action of revolutionary change. And that's true. There is, as we will begin to see even today, that there is no question God cares about the plight of the needy. He cares, dare I say it, about social justice. It's interesting that those two words taken together so divide the church today. It's become such a loaded term that one group lauds it and another, no pun intended, lionizes it. It should not be that way. And this first strand of justice is inescapably linked to the second strand, which is worship. From the first two verses, a challenge is laid down concerning Israel's worship. There is a reason why Zion and Carmel are talked about. Because there is false and corrupt worship, and it is leading to the mistreatment of the poor. To deceit and a chasing after opulence and money as opposed to God. When we worship the wrong things, the way we treat others will be compromised, Amos tells us. There's a TV series, a Netflix or Amazon or one of these um, called American Gods. And I can't recommend it based on the reviews that I've seen. I haven't watched it. But it's based on a novel by the British writer Neil Gaiman. And I have read the novel. He writes what is often called contemporary fantasy. And the basic idea of this book is that the gods, small g god, are real and petty. And they were brought to America with the immigrants. So, one of the main characters is an incarnation of Odin brought by the Vikings as they came. And there's Egyptian gods and Slavic gods and African gods and all of them. But there are also new gods, like Technical Boy and Media. She's a goddess. And Mr. World, Globalization. And what Gaiman, who is very much not a Christian, let me get that very straight, amazingly gets very close to right throughout is that what we worship is deeply connected to what we do in the real world. And the new gods in the novel are very much the things that we make gods. And, and Gaiman, one of Gaiman's points seems to be that we can't divide the way that we treat others and the gods we worship. They, it's simply not possible. And he's right. But the second theme that we're going to see over and over again is Yahweh's sovereignty over every area of life. And we're going to see this today. But this is what Hubbard says specifically about how Amos paints this picture. Sovereign over his own people, over the nations, and indeed over the whole creation was Amos's Lord. Famine, drought, blight, plague, and holocaust were all within his power when lessons of judgment were to be taught. Chapter 4. 6 to 11. The mountains, wind, and daily cycles of light and darkness bow to his authority. 4.13. Constellations, eclipses, rainstorms, and earthquakes are in his charge. Chapter 5 and chapter 8 and chapter 9. Locusts ravage at his bidding and retreat at his signal. Chapter 7. His fiery presence can consume both the land and the deep, which are his creations. Chapter 7. Brown, barren mountains teem with life-giving 
fruit when he says the time is right, chapter 9. This all-embracing picture of the sovereignty serves one basic purpose in the text, to bring Israel's fantasies of invulnerability down to size. The, the misunderstood sense of chosenness is combined in the 8th century with a measure of military advance and territorial enlargement and material prosperity to elevate Israel in their own eyes. Superior to the nations is how they viewed themselves and special to God. That self-exaltation inevitably clouded their sense of obligation to and dependence on him and threatened to reduce him to their benign private caretaker. His righteousness was interpreted as readiness always to do right by them. And that leads directly to Israel's election, their covenant relationship with God. And remember that the covenant is a special kind of treaty with blessings and curses and obligations on both sides. And interestingly, Amos never uses the word covenant, but it's there. It's like assumed throughout. And it's like he simply takes for granted that Israel needs to know better. But he sums it up over and over again with two words, righteousness and justice. And worship goes hand in hand. And and this is how it's put by Hubbard. He says, the covenant theology represented is at once indicative and imperative. Okay, this is grammar. Indicative. What is imperative? What you do what you are commanded to do. The indicative, Israel's constitution as the people of Yahweh. The imperative, Israel's vocation to be the people of Yahweh. The indicative part of the grammar was firmly in place. You only have I known of all the families of the earth, God says in 3.2. But God's, God's elective love, known, has made Israel his people, both in the patriarchal traditions. Amos talks about Jacob and Joseph and and Isaac, we're going to learn, and in the Exodus as well. But the imperative, Hubbard says, would not parse, meaning they're not doing it. Israel rejected the divine vocation, a far more intimate relationship to Yahweh than the nations enjoyed, and thus shattered the syntax of the covenant oath. The fourth theme is Yahweh's irresistible word, the word of God. Hubbard says this last, the last theme is the irresistible word. Crucial to our appreciation of the Hebrew prophets is our grasp of what the divine word meant to them. More than anything else, it was the reception of the word that marked them off from their friends and neighbors. And their proclamation of that word only increased the distance between them and others. This is going to happen to Amos. And once God has spoken, he says, the prophet's response is a reflex action as much beyond personal control as the chilling fear prompted by the lion's unexpected roar. Amos' ministry stemmed not so much from the fact that he grasped the word as that the word grasped him, and irresistibly. He knew not only theologically but personally that once launched, the word of Yahweh would accomplish its purposes, and yes, unless Yahweh himself called it back. Given the nature of the divine word, to try to resist it was both the height of folly and as the disputation questions, this is later in chapter 3, and the depth of wickedness as the threats to Amaziah in chapter 7 and the people throughout revealed. The word was irresistible because it was virtually an extension of Yahweh's person. I would add quickly a fifth theme. There is still hope, and we're going to see some information about a remnant, and then in chapter 9 about restoration. And I think that's connected to the idea of covenant. This is not an easy message to deliver for Amos, especially because he has to cross a border to do it. God gives him this devastating message, and he calls the sins of the people to account, but he can't do it in his own land. He's like, if a Canadian prophet were to come down to the United States... And tell us about all of our sins. There's a relationship, sort of a younger brother, older brother thing going on there. But they're no longer one people. And that message is going to stick in the craw of the people who are going to hear it. You're not us. But there's also something really odd, and this is the second point, about the way that Amos' message gets delivered. 
And this is about international accountability. Don't worry, that was the longest point by far. And as a side note, stay tuned. That internal accountability comes next week. Amos doesn't start with Israel, but with the nations surrounding Israel. We're going to look at that map again in, in a second. But the nations are often called to account in the prophets, but rarely first. And in this case, the order crisscrosses the nations of Israel and, and Judah north to south and east to west. And the structure is really kind of genius, because what does Amos do? His main target is Israel. But he starts by talking about all of those lands who, as we just heard, Israel thought they were better than. So he sort of gets the enemy, Israel, on, their, on his side, right? Because he starts there. And then he goes to Judah. Well, that's the younger brother we really don't like because he's annoying. And then, wham, right between the eyes with a two-by-four, Amos hits Israel. And it's a great strategy if you want to get people's attention. But even so, the judgments against the nations are more than legitimate. And today's passage shows us four specific things we should remember. The first is the sovereignty of God. This whole section that we read reminds both Israel and the nations that God is Sovereign. There may be boundaries to the nations of Israel and Judah. And they are God's covenant people in a special way. But there are no boundaries to God. He is sovereign over all. And, and what we saw, you heard the repetition that went on. That's basically a special formula going on to reinforce, in large part, God's sovereignty. It starts with, this is what the Lord says. Every time God is mentioned by name. Not a generic God, and there's no room for misdirection. The formula sets up Amos' authority over all of these nations because it's God who's judging them. And then you get, after the, that, this is what the Lord says, you get a general accusation, an announcement of punishment. For three sins, even four, I will not turn back my wrath. And then you're going to get specific accusations for that country, and then, in some cases, an elaboration and a closing with this is the Lord has said. And there's a few things that reinforce God's sovereignty in this. First, this is what the Lord says, indicates that Yahweh holds sway no matter what gods those nations claim. He has a legitimate right to judge. Second, these sins that we hear about, the word is transgressions in Hebrew. And this is a word tied to the idea of covenant responsibilities, pesha. It, it carries the meanings of a legal offense and, as one commentator put it, rebellion in the form of social transgression. What this means is that God is claiming, at least on some level, that these nations have abandoned their covenant responsibilities with him and his people. And we kind of scratch our heads and we say, how? They don't have special revelation. Isn't it unfair of God to hold them responsible for revelation they don't have? No. Because at the very least, all of these nations were close enough that they would have known of and heard of Yahweh because of Israel, because of the Jewish prophets. And at one point, time of David and Solomon, every one of these countries was under the sway of Israel. They were not completely ignorant. But we could even take it further. If we look at Romans chapter 1 and 2 for just a moment, Paul makes it clear that those who haven't received specific revelation are still accountable. In chapter 1, verses 20 to 22, he says, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor give thanks to him. But their thinking has become futile and their foolish hearts darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. And then you turn the page in chapter 2, verses 12 to 14. He says this, All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. God is not holding people accountable for the law. And all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. 
verse 14. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. What does all this mean? It means that at some level, all of us, whether we know the scripture or not, can hear and understand who God is and what he requires, but we choose not to. And that there are certain things that are universal, whether you are a Christian or not, whether you are a believer or not. The next thing we see is this formula, three, even four sins. Is a, it's an idiom. It's a statement of emphasis. Look, never do you see four sins listed. You see one sin in every case. The point is, as the NLT says, the people of, fill in the blank, have sinned again and again. God has been patient, but there is a limit. And it's also clear that the nations are being judged for the light they have. They are not, as we're going to see in, in the coming weeks, unlike Israel and Judah, condemned for wrong worship. They are condemned for acting inhumanly toward one another. And that whole picture of God's sovereignty is going to poke at Israel and Judah. Because if these nations, who are not God's people, are responsible to this degree, what are you, the people of God, responsible for? See, God is sovereign over all. Next, the significance of these nations. If we can bring back that map for a minute. See, sometimes it's easy for us to go about our own business and, and not think about our neighbors, but they matter to God too. And these neighbors are significant in several ways. In all of these neighbors that surround Israel, we're going to see how they're significant. You see, part of Israel's job was to show the nations who God was and how to behave, and they didn't do a very good job of it. Because they became more like their neighbors than their neighbors became like them. And the nations, you know, God has set them up, Israel up, to be a kingdom of priests, and the nations matter to God. And all of these, these nations had direct ties to Israel. And here's a few ways how. So Damascus in the top right is the capital Aram, the, the traditional northern enemy. And they've, they were controlled by Israel at the time of David and Solomon. And they captured Gilead. The Jordan River runs down the middle and, and right there, sort of in the middle on the, on the east side is Gilead. And Reuben and Gad and part of Manasseh had settled there and they had been captured. And then Gaza, down on the bottom left, we hear about Gaza all the time today. It's Philistine territory. Perpetual enemies of Israel and Judah on the southwest. Ashdod and Ashkelon and Ekron and all figured in the turmoil over the years. Samson died in Gaza. And it was the southern limit of Judah. In both the united and divided kingdoms. Tyre, up in the top left. That's Phoenicia. And it's where the cedars of Lebanon came from. And King Hiram of Tyre built David a house because he loved him so much. And, and we don't know exactly what covenant they broke, but they broke one. Edom, bottom right. Relatives of Israel. This is the, the country started by Esau. Ammon is a nation that can be traced back to one of the sons of Lot. And Moab, like Ammon, is also descended from Lot. And both were, quote, excluded from the assembly of the Lord because they had conspired to oppose Israel after the exodus by hiring Balaam to curse the Hebrews. All of these nations had dealings with Israel, and therefore God. And they continually, repeatedly sinned. And we tend to think so natural about our individual responsibility before God that we can often overlook this corporate aspect. But the judgments that Amos gives are against nations, against people. Because nations as well as individuals matter to God. We live both as individuals and as parts of wholes, whether it's families or corporations or towns or states or nations. And as the statement goes, no man is an island. This section reminds us of this truth. And, you know, we've talked about politics in our last series, about national sins. The nations matter to God. And he judges them as well as individuals. And that means they ought to be significant to us as well. 
So let's look at the sins of the nations. We hinted at this earlier. The sins of these nations are not worship-related. Not that they don't have those kinds of sins. They do. But what they are called for here is man's inhumanity toward man. Damascus, Aram. They had used threshing sledges against people. This is brutal. A threshing sledge is a sled, maybe a very low-wheeled chariot with iron prongs or spikes on the bottom. It was designed to pull through grain piles to kick up the chaff so it would blow away, and they were used on people. And the, the Philistines sold entire towns into slavery to Edom, and so did Tyre, but Tyre also broke some treaties. Edom did worse. They took all of these slaves, and in verse 11 tells us they killed his brother. And either, depending on how the Hebrew is translated, your Bible might treat this a little bit differently, they either were with the, the text says, without mercy or slaughtered women, which of course may refer to sexual molestation. In any case, they always raged and slashed at Israel. That brother-to-brother battle of Jacob and Esau never stopped. And Ammon vied with Aram for Gilead. They were both looking for that. They were brutal targeting civilian populations and killing pregnant women, Texas, ripping them open with swords. Moab, it's interesting, the last one, burned the bones of the king of Edom. They desecrated the body. It's not against Israel, it's against Edom. And God says, no. These are sins of inhumanity. The way that we treat each other. Do we honor our treaties? Do we betray our friends and relatives? Do we make excuses for the way we treat others in a time of war? Whether combatant or non-combatant. Do we treat other humans as humans or as cattle? God doesn't look favorably on any of those things. And woe to the nation who does them. And we see it in the sentence of God. The prophet Nahum says, The Lord is slow to get angry, but his power is great, and he never lets the guilty go unpunished. 1-3. Scripture tells us God is exceedingly patient, but there will be a reckoning. And he is sovereign and holy and righteous and just, and his vengeance will be severe. We, we think of God as mean sometimes in the Old Testament. That's not the picture. This is the picture of a a patient God who says, enough. And his vengeance looks like devastation. And in this passage today, what we've seen, that the bringing down walls and targeting kings and fire, it's complete vulnerability to the forces of the world around. That's the picture. He targets kings and leads, leaves entire civilizations at the mercy of the wolves. Because Assyria is rising again in the north. And in just a few years after Amos, kings are going to be exiled and entire civilizations wiped out because of the vile things they have done. God cares about justice. And there's going to come a time of payment. As the saying goes, live by the sword, die by the sword. And God can and will use other nations to chasten those who do wrong. Even nations that are not right themselves. And all the things that we trust in, our powerful leaders and our weapons and our armies and our wealth or whatever, they're not going to be enough to protect us when the bill comes due. Which leads to the final point, which is an invitation to assess ourselves. Come to this point and you think, okay, Amos, what a great way to win friends. Nothing like easing into it. And the difficulty with a passage like this, it's easy to say, oh, we're not like those people. We see everyone else indicted, but not us. And that's true as far as it goes, except for it doesn't go far enough. Part of me wants to just pause right here. I mean, this is a long message because there's so much territory to cover. Part of me says, wait till next week. But I can't do that because... The people of God are going to get theirs too. 
And I think there are some real applications for us from both the overview of Amos and this specific passage. So first, the question we have to ask ourselves is, do we recognize God for who he really is? I think that's the first and most important, if implicit, idea in today's passage. On the surface, this is about the nations and the evil things they've done. That's the easy message. Hey, culture, you who have targeted my people, I'm coming for you. But that's not really the point. The point is God. God is sovereign. And he will execute justice even for the people who are not his. Against people who do not claim him. For their very real transgressions. Transgressions that everyone knows. Believer or non-believer are transgressions. God is going to enforce his standards. And if he's going to do it on people who don't have full knowledge of him. What is he going to do with us who do? We're going to see starting next week that the problems in Israel and Judah, God's people, are that they're living no differently than these nations. In fact, it's worse because their knowledge of God didn't keep them from betraying him. The lion has roared and it sounds like fire and destruction. Second question. Do we recognize the seriousness of sin? All of these nations at the time are probably experiencing the same kinds of affluence that Israel and Judah are. Why? Because Egypt and Assyria aren't pushing like they had been. Within a decade, Assyria is going to come back and lay waste to many of these nations. And God's going to use them to punish the sins of the nations. Not even the sins against God, which are arguably worse. The sins against one another. It's time for us to take stock. Do we justify inhumanity toward others because they're not God's people, because they're not us, because they oppose us? God is having none of it. To sin against humanity in these ways, to justify it, is to offend the sovereign God of the universe. Finally, do we reduce our faith by separating worship and justice? Both the passage today and the book of Amos as a whole tell us we can't separate holiness and justice. Right belief, worship, and right action go hand in hand. If they don't, they're neither right worship nor right action. The entire world is God's whether the nations acknowledge him or not. And we as followers of Jesus above all should understand we can't separate love of God from love of neighbor. Whether our neighbor is a Samaritan or an Aramean or an Edomite or a Philistine, a relative or an enemy, whether the neighbor is Canada or Iran, whether they are Christian or Muslim, believer or pagan, whether they are like us or opposed to us, Israel was to be a kingdom of priests to the watching world. And they failed. And the nations around them suffered because of it. And how are we doing? The Apostle James tells us to show our faith by our deeds. And the rest of Amos is going to show us just how entwined right worship and justice are. And how material blessings that Israel enjoyed were just perfuming over the stink of death. So we need to take a look at ourselves as we head into the book of Amos and ask, are we standing on God's side? Because there is trouble on the way and the lion 